everybody, this is Richard Sachs, your host on Lost Arts Radio. Nice to see you again. And uh, I've thought about today's show, and, and it really fits into what's happening in the world right now, because a lot of people are feeling the stress of, of things happening around us in many of the Western countries, certainly, and, and really all over the world, um, trying to deal with, with a lot of uncertainty. And so, some of the people are feeling more... Uh, more of a challenge in dealing with it than than usual because they're dealing with various kinds of uh, circumstances in their own lives, maybe economically with everything being shut down in, in the world around us and that sort of thing. And I wanted to give a little bit of inspiration today and show that if if you've got difficulties that you're dealing with or obstacles to overcome, you don't have to let that make you feel helpless and weak and victimized um, there are people who take it as the exact opposite, as a challenge to do the most with what what is going well and workable in your life that you possibly can. And it also made me remember our recent talk with Gareth Ike, who's a musician, and he was saying that, well, music is pretty much shut down and, you know, things are a little bit tougher in the UK than they have become so far in the US, although we're we're right on their heels with the development in a negative direction that we want to turn around. But he was saying, well, the music industry is gone. And, you know, we have examples that that may be true locally in some places uh, to some degree. But in the U.S., there are still people, and in, I'm sure in other countries, too, that are taking advantage of what is still possible to do. And one of our friends, uh, Joey Stuckey, who's been a musician for a long time, has been dealing with some obstacles that a lot of people don't have to deal with, and that's that as, as a baby, long time ago, he lost his sense of sight and smell and couldn't deal with, those, with things in those realms. And so he got really interested in, sight, in the sense of hearing and the world of music and developed that to an incredible extent and is still going strong in that area with his own studio. And I thought, wow, maybe we could get a little bit of insight directly from Joey if he'd be willing to do an actual show with us and get a feeling for his background and maybe start uh, where where his life st- story started and bring it up to the present through whatever steps he wants to and then what he's developed and what is currently going on in his world that's very active in the music industry to show that it's not gone and if you're creative and determined, there aren't limits in what you can do. And fortunately, he said that he would do that for us. And I thought that was great. So welcome, Joey, and thanks for being here. This should oh, be it's a, my pleasure, sir. It's going to be a fun tour of your life and your work and your Absolutely. actual physical studio. And I have to say one more thing. We recently had a, a show with uh, Dr. Michael Christian, an amazing optometrist, and said, Dr. Christian, why don't you take us into your office and 
set up like a imaginary patient and walk us through that. And he said, fine. And he brought a real patient and it was amazing. And all of you guys got to be right in the office while he worked with an actual patient. We're doing the same thing with music today and we're going to get some background and then go into Joey's studio and get a tour. So you want to tell us a little bit, Joey, about um, relevant points in your life that led up to right now, and then we'll get into what you're doing in the present. Absolutely. Um, it's my great pleasure to be here with you, and I'm so excited because you're doing something positive right now. Exactly. Um, and that is, that's tough. It's tough. Um, um, you know, and, and I, um, I, in a way, I've been kind of built for this moment. Because uh, when I was 18 months old, they discovered the brain tumor that took my eyesight along with my sense of smell. But it also destroyed my endocrine system. So I don't have, for example, adrenal function. I didn't even know that. uh, Wow. That's tricky. (laughs) That would be really tricky. I didn't think you could function without that. Well, I I regulate it. Um, There's a lot of different things I have to do every single day. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like I've been run over by a truck. And wow. when I, it takes me, you know, uh, about three hours to get my act together um, because I have to wait. When I first wake up, I think, oh, God, I'll, I'll never get out of bed today. Uh, but I sit up on the edge of the bed and I sit there for a minute and go, God, I'll never stand up today. And then I stand up I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get ready today. But then I, I'm like, but I, I force myself, even though I, even though I feel like I cannot. I so these these like ho- hormones that are normally secreted by the adrenal glands all over the body, mm-hmm. that's not happening in your system. Yeah, right. right. So wow. so one of my one of my big challenges with that um, is to uh, hydrate real well. So mm-hmm. I have the fluids are real critical for me, right. Um, right. because that's that helps maintain a lot of systems. Um, so there's a lot of things going on there that I have to do. Now, I have been blessed in many, many ways to find some very gifted doctors over the years who have taken really good care of me, took a special interest in me. Okay. Um, I also happen to be married to not only the smartest person I know uh, and the love of my life, but she's an advanced practice nurse. So that comes in wow. quite handy. <laughs> things lined um, up pretty well. In the, in the, yeah, uh, yeah, I did good well. Um, so, so the, these challenges, you know, my, my early life, um, uh, and I guess I should, I should just clarify once I get going in the morning, uh-huh. uh, my, my clients never know that I've got a problem. Uh, I have to watch it because when I get in the zone and I'm making music, sometimes I forget to drink enough fluids and stuff like that. Yeah. And my wife or one of the people that works here will look at me and go, you look a little pale, drink this. And they just shove a drink in my hand. I drink it. I don't uh, see your water bottle sitting there next to you. I, yes, I have this this lovely bottle that I should take the label off of because I'm not getting paid. But okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but but uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, I, once I get my act together, I'm good to go for the day. But as a child, I mean, my whole first, you know, 15 years or so were extremely traumatic. Uh, almost died a couple of times, um, and and they actually said. To my parents, my mom, by the way, w- was really concerned. She felt like there wasn't something quite, you know, quite right with her child. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, I, I think something's wrong with my child. And, and they said, oh, you're just a protective mother. Go home and bake cookies or whatever. But, yeah. you know, parents, parents know their kids. And, um, right. and eventually what happened was my dad uh, let go of my hand and uh, I took 
when he went to, to do something, let go of my hand. We were at his office and I took two steps forward and fell down a flight of like 30 stairs. And I didn't realize they were there. Uh, and, um, they rushed me to the hospital. I was actually okay for the fall. The fall apparently didn't hurt me. Apparently I have a very hard head. Uh-huh. Um, so I was okay for the fall, but they're like, Oh, I think this kid can't see. And then they realized that indeed I had a brain tumor and the brain tumor was not cancerous in the sense that, uh, it was non-malignant, but what was happening was it was growing at such an exponential rate, like just really fast that it was just chewing up the wiring on the inside of my head, basically. And how, how but, old were you at that point? Well, by the time I had the surgery, I was two years old, but, okay. but everything first got diagnosed when I was about 18 months. Okay, and you can it. see, I'm going to take these glasses off. You can see my eyes on the outside are actually, you know, normal. Yeah. Uh, a lot of blind guys wear glasses. I'm wearing glasses right now because I'm not, I don't usually look at anything, obviously. Right now, I've got my eyes focused towards the camera, uh, you know, generally speaking, where I hear your voice coming from. Mm-hmm, and there's right. a lot of light on me. And it makes my eyes water. <laughs> okay, got, <laughs> so, it. got so, it. So I have the glasses on for that reason. Now, when I perform, I put them on partly because it's part of my, bland, my brand. Because what I do when I perform is I tell a lot of stories about being blind and about all these different things. That's, so that's part of the brand. But just, just to show, I mean, there's nothing actually wrong with the outside of my eyes. It's all internal stuff. Right, um, got it. Okay. So, so, but anyway, yeah, my first, you know, 15 years or so were real traumatic. Um, a lot of time spent in the hospital. I spent over three months in ICU after the brain tumor surgery. And, you know, compared to today's medicine, it was terribly primitive. I've got a scar. They had to take this whole part of my skull to get to the tumor. So I've got a scar that goes from this ear mm-hmm. all the way around to sort of the center of my forehead there. Okay. Um, and um, they told my parents, uh, actually the first doctor told my parents that I was going to die and forget about it. Yeah. And they said, okay, well, you're not doing the surgery. And so <laughs> they, they, they found another doctor to do it. He said, look, here's the deal. It's going to be an eight-hour eight surgery. Um, it's unlikely that he'll survive. But if he does, he probably will not walk or talk. And, Richard, I know you to be a man of, 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 of spirit. And, um, and, and uh, so I think you'll appreciate that. Um, the doctor said, you know, if we come out in less than eight hours, you need to be prepared that your son didn't make it. Yeah. They came out in three hours. And my, the doctor told my parents, he said, I don't really know how else to explain it, except that I feel like a higher power took hold of my hands and I lifted, I lifted the tumor out. And, wow. and wow. that was it. And that did not mean that we had an easy road. We did not. But the fact is, from an early age, my parents did something rather brilliant. And that was, they always kept me focused on what was possible instead of what wasn't possible. Always focused on affirmation over yeah. fear. That is and I brilliant. Think, I think right now, you know, this is a time that that lesson is really important. Because instead of saying this day, September 29th, uh, this day is the day you almost died. They chose to frame it that it's the day you beat the odds. It's the day you live. Exactly. And right. It's a, it's kind of a small thing, but it's so critical to understand, you know, how to really survive and thrive in the world. And this right side of my body, I mean, medically people say that, that this doesn't make sense, but it's hard for me not to feel 
like the right side of my body's had a bit of a pounding because later in life I had to have a total hip replacement on my right side. I had something called a vascular necrosis. I was misdiagnosed for over a year with bursitis. And then one day my hip literally just died and crumbled into dust essentially. Mm-hmm. And I had to have a total hip replacement on this right side was wheelchair bound for six months or so. And I've had to have a total re- shoulder replacement uh, on this right side as well. And it's just hard for me to you know think, well, I've got this big scar on the skull on this side. The tumor was kind of more on the right side. So the right side's had a bit of a beating. <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. But, yeah. but you know, I mean, my, my focus has always been what do I do to live my life? What do I do to live my life? What, what, what do I have to do to make that work? And so, uh, for example, when I was in the wheelchair, they didn't want to do the hip replacement surgery. Uh, nobody wanted to do it because I was so young. I was in my 20s. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. they're like, man, you're so young, you're so young. And I said, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. But, you know, one doctor actually suggested, well, if you could stay in the wheelchair, you know, 15, 20 years um, and then do the hip surgery, that'd probably be best. And I, I said, man, you, you know, you, that's crazy. I said, I, I need to live my life. I need to walk. I need to. I said, look, I understand what you're saying about me being so young. And I respect that, that opinion. But if I sit in this wheelchair for 20 years, my legs will atrophy and I won't be able to walk anyway. That's so right. let's get out of the wheelchair now, live the life I can now, and we will deal with whether I have to have another hip replacement or whatever later. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. let's be honest, I'm not, I'm not an athlete. I'm not out wrestling or playing football or, or anything, or, you know, hockey or baseball. So, yeah. you know, the wear and tear I get on my joints is not going to be the same thing as, you know, a, a sport, someone that's an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, but the, the hip that I have, um, actually had a lot of use in Europe. Uh, and, uh, it has a, a 30 year, uh, or greater now track record of not needing any revisions or replacements or anything. It's old school. It's not the new plastic stuff. Um, but it's, it's an old school hip. It required about a 14 inch incision on my leg. But mm-hmm, if anybody mm-hmm. ever sees that scar, I tell them I got it in a sword fight. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Right. You know, yeah. Why would I not be in the sword fight? So I'll make sure I, I say that if anybody asks. You. you should. I mean, because, uh, you know, you might as well have fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I can't change the fact that I have these health challenges. That's beyond my power. But what I can do is control my attitude about it. And that is not to say that every single day I am thrilled to death to be blind or to be. <laughs> there are there are days right. that it's challenging. Yeah. Um, there are days. But but I think if I was happy all the time, you should worry for me. You know, that, right, right. that would be that would be concerning. You might um, be a cyborg. Seriously. I yeah. mean, so my position is let us feel all the things we feel to be human. And it's totally OK to say I'm not happy with this. I'm frustrated. Mm-hmm. I'm even angry. What you don't want to do is live in that state. The state yeah. that you want to live in is a state of hope, uh, a state of grace. Um, and those are the things that you, you live there. And occasionally you have to visit the other places. Um, it's all, it's all a balance, but I, I do believe, um, you know, I've had a couple of things happen to me, uh, since in the last two years, um, I had a really bad hospital stay, uh, when I had my complete shoulder replacement back in 2018, it was very difficult. Um, I, I don't feel like I got the care I needed. There was some bad instances with that. Also, uh, when I was in the hospital, nobody could seem to comprehend the concept of blind, which I find you know, pretty easy. Eyes don't work. It's pretty simple. Uh, yeah. I had to keep explaining to them, you know, 
literally one woman almost shoved a thermometer up my nose, even though I told her I couldn't see. And it was just crazy. And, wow. and so um, then in, we were on tour and I was traveling and I still wasn't feeling real great uh, after the shirt surgery, but I was out doing my job and working. Mm-hmm. And this lady, we were in LAX and this lady literally started screaming, get out of my way, get out of my way and rammed into my wife and I purposely into our luggage car, knocked all of our luggage out into the street, knocked the luggage cart over. I had to step back because the cart was falling on top of me. And my wife, meanwhile, screaming, don't move, don't move. But I couldn't, I had to move. And I had to step out into the road where there was traffic. And if you can imagine, if you close your eyes for a moment, and your whole world sound and all around you is just utter chaos and you don't know which way to move. And I, I felt, I felt so, so amazed that someone would act that way. Um, and that, that would put my, you know, potentially put me in danger of being harmed. Um, it was really traumatic. I thought, I thought, Lord, am I up to, you know, I, I've had a difficult medical thing with a shoulder. Now I'm out here. I can't even walk you know, out of the airport without being knocked over because I can't see where I'm going. Right. And, you know, it's like, am I up to the challenge of doing what I do? And it, you know, it was, it was a scary moment. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, giving you the cliff note version here. Yeah. Did you ever find out what made that lady so crazy? Or No, but here's the beautiful part in that moment of sheer terror. And it was, it was terrifying because I didn't know what was going on. All I knew is that things were falling everywhere. And so things were slamming, things were hitting me, people were screaming. This wonderful couple came out of the crowd of people. Everybody, by the way, 90% of the people just kept doing their stuff and didn't even stop. Mm-hmm. But these two people came to us, grabbed me, grabbed the luggage, helped us get everything back together. We were we were shaken, to be sure. And would not leave our side until we got into our rental car. That's a, it's a good thing for the all the listeners to think just for a second. Which group would they have been in? Yeah, well, I, I've got an album I'm working on about these experiences and about some of the self doubt and things that I had to cope with, and some of the terror of being blind. Because when I was in the hospital, um, I felt powerless. I felt like I wasn't being listened to. Um, I felt like like they were not listening to me as a patient. Uh, somebody actually injected me twice with something I was allergic to. Um, and I felt really powerless. And then this thing happened with my, with my traveling, by being knocked down. And, you know, I, I have to talk about these things because if I don't, they'll become so big that they're hard to cope with. So I talk about it, even though I'm that's not, right. even though, I, you know, even though that's not my first choice of, of, of uh, icebreakers, but no, I talk I, about I it. completely agree with you. Suppression is a way to make those things bigger. Well, it is. And you've got to, I mean, all I know in my life is the only thing you can do is shine a light. All you can do is shine a light. If you, if you don't shine a light on what's going on and what you believe and what you feel and, and the experiences you have, the only thing I know, the only way I know to defeat things that are dangerous, um, malignant, uh, you know, evil, whatever you want to call it, right. is to shine a light on it and talk about it. That's, that's all I know. To, that's, those, those are the things I can do. Yeah. Um, and, and so I do that whether I want to or not. And, um, but I, 
told, called that moment and this new album I'm working on uh, Tiny Redemptions. And um, it, it's kind of a play on words because it was a tiny moment where two people stopped what they were doing and forgot everything that was going on in their lives to help two complete strangers. And it was a moment that redeemed everything I was feeling, all the fear, all the confusion, all this, all the worry about whether I was up to the challenge of, of continuing to do what I do. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was a moment that where all that turned. And so that moment of redemption and, and you know, moments of redemption, I call it tiny redemptions, but really they're not tiny. Yeah. So it's you know, oh. a moment of redemption is not a tiny thing, but it was just this one moment in these people's lives um, that, you know, had they made another choice, my life would have been very different. And uh, I think that's really, you know, so, but that's the thing. That's why I'm particularly suited to being an artist uh, because art requires two parts, one part all about spirit and love and humanity Mm -hmm. And what it means to be human and, and, and to discuss that and, you know, philosophize about it. And then it requires a total dedication to science because there's all these technical elements that go into the making of the art. And so I love that about what I've chosen to do in my life. And, you know, as I said earlier, I, uh, I really, until I was about 15 years old, really didn't know what I was going to do in my life uh, because it was all focused on survival. At that point, I had I didn't start getting sort of a handle on my health until I was about 15. And I've still certainly had many challenges since then. But uh, before that, it was a lot of hospital stays. You know, was, I was just focusing on trying to go to school. And by the way, I never went to a blind school. I just sort of toughed it out with everybody else and had to use my memory. And, uh, you know, and, and then occasionally, eventually, when I got into high school uh, and started doing geometry and things like that, I had to have uh, someone be my eyes. Uh, my parents fortunately had enough money that they could pay someone to be my eyes and read the board to me and uh, tell me what was on the, the board and stuff like that. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's real hard for a teacher with 30 kids to give one kid more attention than the rest. It's, that's a difficult thing to do. Right. Um, so, you know, but, but anyway, um, you know, it, it's exciting right now to be an artist, even though I'm not enjoying the time we live in my, uh, my, Yelp review of 2020 is zero stars would not recommend. <laughs> and uh, it's been Why? a crazy year. It's Why been is that? Well, you know, it's just been so crazy. It's, it's been so hard this year. The music business certainly has been turned upside down. All of our lives have been turned upside down with a number of different factors that you kind of alluded to at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. And um, the one thing that gives me hope and great joy at this moment is that I know music is a powerful force for positive change. Um, I know that it's healing. I know that it's uniting. I know that it brings a smile to your face when you're sad, or it allows you to empathize with somebody else's pain. And those are all really valuable experiences and, and ways that we can continue to be connected to each other as human beings. So, I, I think that, that what I'm doing right now is more important than it ever has been. And, but that being said, from a business standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, I feel like I'm doing a lot of good. From a business standpoint, it's kind of tricky. But there have been many, many times 
in the music business that we all thought the sky was falling and that the music business was over and, and it just changed form. It was not, right. you know, transformation is never easy. Uh, it's, it's, it's painful. Um, and, but, but it, but it can happen. I mean, when, I don't know if you remember historically, but when they first invented the player piano, everybody thought, Oh gosh, nobody's going to come see live music anymore. They felt the same way when people started doing, you know, wax cylinders and phonographs. Mm-hmm. Oh, people aren't going to come see live music anymore because now they have these recordings. Um, you know, uh, they, they thought that with the player piano, that, that sheet music was dead, that people weren't going to, you know, if you could just put a roll in the piano to play the music for you, nobody would want to learn sheet music. But uh, you know, all those things, uh, none of those things happen. Of course, everybody's like, oh, the music industry is over because now there's digital downloads and CDs are dead and vinyls are dead. Well, of course, vinyl's back with a vengeance. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so I've even sold a lot of vinyl on tour at, you know, some clubs and, and places like that. Uh, we sold, sold a ton of vinyl in 2019. So the music business has always really been in some state of flux and there have been many watershed moments, but they always, they always end up, you know, coming back in some form because at the end of the day, while music is not, uh, you know, one of you know, it's not it's not bread or water or or clothing, uh, but once those things are taken care of, music's pretty essential to feed the soul. You and were I saying think, that that vinyl is still going really good. I yeah. would think that the limiting factor would be the number of people with old style phonographs to play those, right? Well, they're they're making new phonographs again. Um, you can buy one for about a hundred bucks. That's not bad. Of course, there are some really nice ones out there that are uh-huh. you know, $500, right. but they have them even at Walmart or anywhere else. So vinyls, it, it's, you know, it certainly is a niche market as opposed to widespread. The, the primary way that people are consuming music these days is through streaming, uh, online yeah. streaming, yeah. things like Spotify, YouTube, stuff like that. And that's kind of a problem for us in one way, because, um, the, the the royalty rate for that stuff's really bad. But in another way, if we can get those royalty rates up, um, which is something I've been working to do, I mean, you know, I, in my very small way, I just, you know, I, I sign letters and, and, and contact my congressman and stuff like that and say, Hey, please yeah. support increasing the royalty rates and stuff like that. But um, if, if we can get those royalty rates up and in, a long-term career streaming is actually better for you because every time you play that song, I get paid. Now, right, right now it's like 0.2 tenths of a penny. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the royalty rate. So if you are a, if you're listening to this and you have a band that you love, you have an artist that you love, uh, by all means, stream them, enjoy the music wherever and whenever you want, but please do go out and buy their album either either as a download or a CD or vinyl or a Blu-ray video or buy a T-shirt because right now those streaming royalties are are really not enough to make a good living in the music business. And I I reject the concept that poor and artists have to be the same thing. <laughs> you know yeah, I, mean? I completely so, agree. You know, but but you 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 know through things like Patreon and things like that. You know, you can you can mobilize that dedicated fan base. Uh, and the great thing about about our time right now with all the social media and stuff like that, a lot of things you can say about social media that aren't positive. But one thing in the music business that is positive is you can reach out to your fans and ask them, what do you want to consume from me? 
do you want a new album? Do you want me to remaster an old album? Do you want me to press vinyl of a record that you haven't, you hasn't been on vinyl before? Do you want a new T-shirt? Do you want a coffee mug? You know, you can actually chat with these people and get a sense of what product will sell. So you have direct fan marketing that really is rather helpful if you if you take the time to actually communicate with your fan base that way. You can find out exactly what they want if you're providing what somebody wants then you have a pretty good chance of selling that product. Yeah, exactly. So when did the whole music involvement really start for you? I read in your bio that it was about age 17 or so. Is that true? Yeah. So my, my mom and dad, well, music has always been a huge part of my family. And uh, my mom and dad uh, had music playing through the house all the time. My mom did a lot of hymns. She's a Baptist preacher's daughter. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of hymns and what we what I what we call in school sacred music. So we had a lot of sacred music. Then my dad had played in a country band uh, as a hobby for a, a long, long time. So there was country going on. It's kind of a funny story. And uh, when I was little, my parents worked really hard to describe the world around me to make sure I understood, uh, you know, what what things were and, and, and really took a lot of pains, spent a lot of time with me to educate me. Mm-hmm. on you know everything um but they missed two things that took a while for me to figure out they showed me the knob on the radio that turned the volume up and down mm-hmm. but until okay. i was seven i didn't realize you could change the channel <laughs> you did eventually so, figure it out though so so well what happened was uh i went to school one day and i heard someone playing some music and and i asked this kid like, hey what is that he's like that's rock and roll man and uh, so that was that was when I started listening to to rock and roll is is, is uh, this, you know hearing it at school. And then the other thing that I did not learn until I was watching a comedy special uh, was that uh, stop signs are actually octagons. Uh, never knew that mm-hmm. because all the toy stop signs that I had when I was a kid were round. Yeah, exactly. So, so I was I was just assumed they were round. I missed the fact they were octagons. But yeah, anyway, but so music was always a big part of our life. Um, we listened to it a lot. It always filled the home. My parents always were singing and, you know, have, you know, playing music. My dad and his twin brother played. And so whenever they got together, they'd play music and uh, all that kind of stuff. But I didn't start. Again, I really wasn't healthy enough to think about stuff like that until about 15. And um, I got my career really began as a sound person because sound's my universe. I mean, it's, it, is, it is how I'm informed. Yeah. Of, of everything around me. It's how I think of things. And, um, you know, I believe that everything's uh, vibration, you know, everything's vibrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it's really sound is, is a, a very obvious uh, way of understanding that, but it's, it's, you know, it's true. You can, you can figure it out whether you, whether you're a philosopher or a religious person or a scientist, everybody agrees that the universe is vibration. So, for me, sound is how I understand things. And um, I was became obsessed with the idea of recording sounds. And when I was, I was sick with pneumonia, uh, I spent the whole summer uh, you know, in, sick in bed, and I, I couldn't really do anything. And I discovered old-time radio shows from the 1950s, things like The Lone Ranger, mm, The yeah, Shadow. Right, right. And, then, and then later on, there were some more modern radio shows that people were still producing in the eighties. You know, here in the United States, radio shows are not that big in Canada and the UK. They're still really big. And the BBC does it better than anybody else. Um, and, uh, but I started hearing all these radio shows and I thought, 
I could do that. I can make those sounds. Because for a blind person, radio is perfect because the story is told through music, sound effects, and dialogue. Right. And it, it was just beautiful. And so it was a real watershed moment for me. Um, and I started becoming obsessed with recording sounds. And, you know, I still am. Uh, my parents, I carried a very primitive tape recorder with me. It was big and bulky, and I carried it with me everywhere I went. Whenever I heard an interesting sound, I'd stop, and my parents very sweetly indulged me and let me go up to strangers and go, hey, can I record you making that sound? I remember one time we were on the beach, and there was a guy that was sanding his boat. He had a he had a little, I don't know what kind of boat it was, but it was a small little one-person boat. I don't know if it was a kayak or what, but he was sanding it on the beach. He was you know, sort of sanding the bottom of it. And I said, hey, can I can I come record you doing that? That's a cool sound. And just stuff like that. And, you know, I still do it today. My, my wife and I were on tour in Hawaii uh, back in 2004. I was on tour over there. We were lucky enough to have a private beach where we were staying. And mm-hmm. I went out in, 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 in the middle of the ocean with my digital microphone and my recorder on a drinks tray and stood there for half an hour while the surf broke around me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just recorded that, captured that. We were in New York uh, in 2005, and we were walking down the street, and it was the 31st uh, and 5th, I think. And the rhythm of the traffic just transported me to a new world. It was just, it, it, it was just uh, uh, amazing to hear. And I just stopped right there, pulled my recorder out of my bag, clipped my, set my little microphones up, and stood on a street corner for 15 minutes and just recorded traffic going by. And my sweet wife didn't think I was nuts or anything. So, <laughs> so you're really tuned into the details of sound. Oh yeah. That you're yeah. picking up. Um, recently um, I had a, I had kind of a, I don't know, I, like a bucket list thing happen for me. I've, I've known Alan Parsons been very, very blessed to know him and to learn from him mm-hmm. and to be part of a few recording sessions with him. And Alan, uh, for those of you who don't know, of course, had the Alan Parsons project, uh, was the producer of, with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, worked at Abbey Road during the Beatles time there. Um, and Alan sent me a message for my Alive Day, which is September 29th, the day I, I beat that brain tumor. And he sent me a video message this year, and he said that I had the best ears in the business and that, uh, that I knew everything that was happening in the studio. Um, so I am very, very much attuned. And, and one time I was telling him, I was sitting way out of mixed position. So mixed position means that you're in the center of the board and you're you know back from it uh, a little bit. And you're kind of in the center so you can hear both speakers evenly or if you've got a 5.1 system or whatever. You're in the center of that system. But I was way off to one side, kind of like I am now, except even further. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, I don't know how much you can see, but I'm, I'm kind of on the left side of my console. And if I was going to do a real record, I'd be kind of the center here, but yeah. I'm kind of on the left side. Um, so anyway, um, I was sitting way off to one side. Uh, I was, the speakers were not aimed at me at all. I was way off axis. And I said, Hey, on the left channel, the second vocal track, there's a mistake. There's a bad edit. And, uh, there's, a, there's some clicks and some pops and stuff. And everybody in the room was like, uh, I don't hear anything. I'm like, I promise. I promise it's there. And, and they're like, okay. And so they, they sort of like, let's humor this guy. So they pulled it up and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you heard that. And it's not that my ears are magically better. It's not like physiologically there's something special there. It's all brain power. 
you know, you're, sight you're is giving very, them a lot more attention to the sound than most people. Are. Yeah, I'm just it's, it's what I do. So I tell my students I teach music technology for, for two universities here okay. in town. And I tell my students, think about this. If you've got a computer or an iPad or an iPhone or whatever you want to use and you've got three or four or five or six programs running, that machine's going to run kind of slow. If you close all those programs and just have one program running, that program's going to run pretty fast and be very efficient. And that's how it is with me. I can't see, I can't smell, and, you know, I can touch my instrument and stuff like that, but you can't touch sound, right? So when I'm sitting here, I'm not touching the air or touching, you know, I'm, I'm mainly just listening. So I'm just processing the information at a very, very high rate because the other senses are not being used. So I've got more bandwidth is the way I think about it. I've got more processing power to use my ears. Yeah. And, exactly. uh, and that's the trick. So in your bio, it says that you have gone through a lot of stages of different types of involvement with music, including writing and you learned to play guitar from pretty yeah. early on. Right. And yeah. producing, and you learned about the technology and about the sound engineering and all these different things. What was the sequence of that? So I became obsessed with the radio show, um, started recording sounds, and then uh, I got a job when I was 15 years old. My first job was a sound technician at, at the local planetarium. And all the other kids that worked there were 18, 20 years old, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And they said, hey, we, we understand you've got some recording equipment at your house. Uh, I, we're in a garage band. Can we come record with you? I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's, let's do it. That'll be fun. Um, so I started that and then I'd done three or four garage bands, you know, um, uh, kids that were in bands and, and done some recording and the word got around and said, Hey, this, this stuff sounds pretty good. And at that point I wasn't even charging anything. I was just doing it for fun. And uh, I had a little attic room in my home where, you know, I was living with my folks and, and, uh, where I was recording. And, uh, and then, uh, I heard a, a band come in. And they recorded a song that they'd written. They weren't, most of these bands were recording, you know, cover songs, songs that other people had written. They were playing those. Yeah. But these guys came in and played something they wrote. And I said, man, I love that song. Who wrote that? And they're like, oh, that, we wrote that. And another light bulb went off in my head. And I said, man, music is the vehicle through which I'm going to share my story. This is it. This is it. This is, this is it. This is the thing. And, I'm going to share what I learned and how I got there and the trials, the tribulations, the triumphs. I'm going to share all that through music in part because I need to express that because it's part of my spirit and creating music for me is creating music for me is, is, is a compulsion. It's something I have to do. It's what I was meant to do. I firmly believe that. Um, but, also because by sharing my experiences, the hope is that it will inspire someone else to take that leap of faith that they need to follow whatever their passion is. And so I want to tell stories so that people don't fall into the trap of thinking that they're alone. For some reason, it's sort of baked into the human condition that we can't understand what you know, somebody else has gone through, you know, mm -hmm. people think, no, you'll never understand what I've gone through. You know, you can't know my story. Um, 
well, I certainly can't know your story if you don't share it. But some people don't have the tools to do that. What they need, though, is to have that moment of catharsis, that moment of release, that moment of connection when they listen to the radio. And they go, my God, that person is singing my life. They're singing my story. And in that moment, they realize that we're all really connected in a very profound way. So, so that's kind of how the obsession took hold. And I, I've been making music ever since. I, I knew that I, needed to, I wanted to play guitar, that I wanted to get educated, so I went to school for it. You know, I, I studied and practiced and worked hard and, and, uh, and just dedicated myself to that pursuit. And I've never had another job. That's, I've, I've always made music since I was able to, to start working. <laughs> I've See, what I've done. You learned guitar first, and then how long after that did you start writing? I had started writing, I, I dabbled with piano just by ear, mm-hmm. um, just, just picking out the notes. I wasn't particularly good at it. I, I, even now that I've gone to school for music, I would, I would say that I'm a low side of adequate keyboard player. Okay. Uh, and it's kind of funny because being blind, everybody thinks I play piano because <laughs> of Stevie Wonder and Ray yeah. Charles and stuff like that. And they say, hey, will you come play piano? I was like, no, you don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, I started writing in earnest, I mean, pretty much immediately. Even, even when my skill set was really limited, I was still composing. Now, it wasn't good, but I was still trying to express myself. By the time I was 20, uh, I was working on my first album seriously and, and, and actually, you know, doing it. And, um, you know, uh, the first record is always a growing pain. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was difficult to make. A lot of people didn't understand my vision for it. Uh, and I had to learn to be okay with that. <laughs> and go, yeah, yeah. Well, right or wrong. I'm not saying I'm always right. I am saying that it's my record. We're going to do it my way. And that doesn't mean that I'm always right. I'm glad to take responsibility when I'm wrong. And that was but, all songs uh, that you wrote. Right. Yeah, they're all all you know out of my brain, out of my heart, out of my soul, mm-hmm. and and I had to express them a certain way. And and the first record, I'll be honest, when I can I can admit when I'm wrong, the first record I was way too controlling. Uh, I was way too nitpicky about stuff. I was just wanted it to be so perfect, um, which is a which is an illusion. You cannot that that's that's a dragon you shouldn't chase. Uh, you you should you should seek for perfection in the expression. Uh, in, in that, and, and what I mean by that is, does the song communicate? Does it evoke the the emotions, the imagery, the contact with other beings that you wanted? Is it technically perfect? Well, ideally, that would be nice. But you know, you can perfect the soul right out of something. So you have to learn when it's good enough, even if it's not what you consider perfect. And that's tough. That's a tough lesson. Um, so that first record was real tumultuous because I was so obsessed. I was it was so important, and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna get it perfect. I'm gonna get it perfect. I'm gonna get it perfect. And in, eventually, what I had to do was I got it as perfect as I was able to get it at the moment. Uh, now I could go back and play some of those songs ten times better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know that's why you come to the live show. <laughs> right. Yeah. So was that you on guitar singing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I play all the guitars. I do all the vocals. Sometimes I play bass as well. Sometimes I play keyboard if it's something simple. If it's something fancy, I get someone who's a good keyboard player. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also 
uh, in pre-production, um, I will sometimes even play the drum parts and then just, just to have something to lay, lay the track down to. And mm-hmm. then I'll get a real like awesome drummer to come in and replace my parts. Okay. So, you know, okay. I'm, again, low side adequate drummer as well. Uh, it, it's not, it's not terrible, but it's also not amazing. Um, so, so, you know, right. it, you know, no, I think part of, part of it is knowing when you need somebody else, uh, to do the job. But I, my first band, my bandmates, there were four guitar players and, and, and a drummer and, and that's way too many guitar players. And we were all just sort of strumming the same chords, you know? And, mm. uh, and, and so, um, I say my first band, it wasn't my first band, but it was the first band I was in. And, and I said, look guys, you know, this is just a wall of sound, but there's no distinction. There's no, you know, we need to play parts. Like you need to play this pit and I need to play this bit. And then these things will complement each other. So eventually what I did, uh, the guys weren't really able to pick the parts out for themselves. So I said, well, I'll learn all the parts and then I'll teach them to you. Yeah, and that's yeah. how the producer in me was born is that okay. I had to learn all the parts and say, well, you play this and you play that and you play this and, I'll play this, and then now we've got, you know, three, four guitar players, but we're all playing something a little different that complements the other guy. Yeah, and and how did that step into putting a studio together? Yeah, so I just, I mean, basically, I I kept collecting gear. Every time I had a little money, I'd buy something better. Uh, I eventually moved out of my home into a building in downtown Macon, Georgia, where I'm proud to serve as a music ambassador here, the official music ambassador, and. Uh, Cause I love my, I love my hometown. I love talking about all the great music that comes from this area. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it and, and finally built something that was really uh, of a competitive nature and a commercial, uh, you know, commercial recording studio. And sometimes I just push the buttons and do the tech stuff as an engineer. Sometimes I'm the producer, which means that I handle the musical things. Uh, I say, Hey, your kick drum pattern isn't working with the bass guitar line. We need to change that. Or, you know, this song really needs a violin. Let's find a violin player or, Hey, I, I think that's a pretty good vocal take, but I think you can do better. I, I think you got a better one. Either. Let's try that again. And a lot of what I do as a producer actually is like psychology because it's making the artist feel happy, comfortable and productive because yeah. if they're not happy and comfortable and, and, and having a good time, then we can't get any work done. Um, you it, you got to be in the right mental frame of mind to get a good record. So that's a lot of what I do is 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 kind of act as a cheerleader. Uh, but I don't try to make someone sound like something they're not. I just try to bring out the best version of them that I can. You know, I want them to sound like them. I don't think every female vocalist needs to sound like Kelly Clarkson. We right. got one of her. She's amazing. Yeah. But we don't need another one. Let's do you. You know, so I think there's... Re- Will we all sell out 80,000 seat arenas? No, but we can all have vibrant, exciting and meaningful careers with people that love what we do. So now if somebody wants to play music and they're in a band or they want to be in a band and they want to have a career that way, is there any way to do it at this point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the great thing about music is it's never too late. Now, I'm not going to lie. If you're young and attractive, that's going to help you out. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, it right. Just, it just is. So just make sure you stay that way indefinitely, right? Just stay that way indefinitely, whatever you have to do, from out of hide, whatever it is. Yeah, um, yeah. But but in all seriousness, I mean, the thing is, music is this beautiful language that has no boundaries. 
And it doesn't matter, you know, if, if, let me put it this way. If you like it, somebody else will like it. Does that mean that you will have a million bestseller? That's a real hard proposition. You might be the one. So just like the Red Sox used to say before they won the World Series uh, back in 2004, I think it was, they hadn't won for a long time. Their, their slogan was, why not us? Why not us? So right. why not you? But just go into it with the real, realistic expectation that you may be blessed. You may be in the right place at the right time and do all the right things and just have this hit that just gels. But you may not. And you got to be okay with that. Um, right. But you should do it because you love it. And if you do that, everything else is going to fall into place. I like to talk about success, what a successful life is. Uh, and I talk about that as a blind brain tumor survivor. And one of my four pillars of what I consider success, the first pillar, and arguably perhaps the most important, is intention. Once you have mm-hmm. a goal, once you have an intention, every decision you make from that point on is going to further that purpose. If you don't have a goal or an intention, what you're going to find is that you find that you're reacting to life instead of setting a path through life. And if you're constantly reacting, you're going to make more mistakes. That's what I believe. So I think if you've got a burning desire to play music, you should do it because you love it. And if nobody else loves it, that's okay. But I'm here to tell you that somebody else will love it. Now, you may have to work hard to find that audience but somebody's going to enjoy that music and and not just your mama and that's not to say that you shouldn't work hard at it i'm not saying you can just pick up the guitar and the next you know i I think the the sort of the the problem is the myth is that today i've written a song tomorrow i'll be a star yeah and people people talk about overnight sensations right and and so um and i tell my kids like yeah that guy was an overnight sensation 20 years in the making he was out there or she was out there playing and performing and working on their craft forever. You just didn't know them. And then all of a sudden, all those steps they took finally coalesced into a moment where everything fell into place and all the hard work paid off. And now, boom. Right. So it can't happen. But if you want to be in the music business, um, the reason you should get in it is because you love it. And you're, and you're not complete without it. And uh, if you have that mental aspect, that mental attitude, you will be able to survive all the slings and arrows that will be thrown at you because it is a crazy business, man. It's, you know, it's full of a lot of people that are very self-deluded. It's full of people that, that are, are shysters and, and, and crooks. It's full of people that will promise you the moon and not deliver. But it's also full of a lot of amazing, talented, beautiful, wonderful people that, that you're going to be, your life will be enriched to know. So right. it's all worth it in the end, but it's, it, it ain't easy. <laughs> I mean, so know. how many different capacities are you working in now? How's your time split up? Are you mostly well, with recording or Yeah, the recording or business really, um, as we were talking about earlier, you know, the recording business this year was really bad. The touring business is non-existent. Yeah, uh, exactly. People can do live stream stuff on Facebook and stuff like that, but it's really hard to get people to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's even hard to get people that, you know, people's attention spans are virtually non-existent. Yeah. So it's really hard to get someone even to click a button and give you a tip, like a, a tip jar. Um, because, because typically when they're on social media, they're also doing a bunch of other stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of at the same time. 
So, um, so that the touring part where a lot of the money is made in, in this form of the music business, that is basically gone. Right. Um, but uh, things are starting up again. And I am now starting to see the recording business pick up. People are saying, well, if I'm not touring, if I'm not having to do all the things I used to do to make a living, I might as well be productive in some way. And so they're getting back into making more music than they've ever made before. So for some people, it, it's been actually a, a, a really productive time. Uh, but for me, my primary living comes from the production side of things, even though I'm a recording artist and all that stuff and I tour and all that. Mm-hmm. My primary income comes from the studio side. So, um, you know, that, that's been a little bit low uh, lately. But, you know, you just do the best you can and try to find new ways of, of finding revenue. And uh, the, the biggest thing that I do is I'm always trying to improve myself in some way. Yeah. And uh, so one of the biggest things that I do is I was like, okay, right now is not the time to spend money on buying new microphones <laughs> or new equipment. Let's cut the spending back because the revenue's down. Let's, you know, let's, let's just sort of focus on what we do. And, uh, and so that's kind of how I, I've just been sort of hunkering down, but I've been writing a lot, which is good. So okay. I'm, I'm happy yeah. about that. What's the typical kind of customer when there's enough customers around who wants to hire um, your studio? It, it splits. It's, it's probably about 50% professionals that make a living at it. Uh, Meaning about, bands that want to record a record, or yeah, you... bands or artists. Uh huh. Okay. Bands or solo artists. Yeah. So it's about fifty percent that. It's probably about thirty percent hobbyist um, people that don't make a living at it, but they either offset their income with it or they do it as a hobby. Okay. And then it's about twenty percent other stuff like voiceovers for commercials. I've done commercials for like Chase Bank and mm-hmm. the Georgia Lottery and stuff like that. So voiceovers, audiobooks. Uh, just, you know, on hold music, just like a hodgepodge other stuff. Okay. So that customer profile of, of that, those different types of customers should kind of explain why you've got different pieces of equipment in your studio right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's lots of different things. And I'm going to give you a studio tour so you can see the creative space. That would be but really you, great. Yeah. Yeah. But what, well, before I do that, um, if you would like, I was going to I was going to take you real quick through the creative process. Yeah, when you when you when you're creating a song from scratch, you yeah. know, that would be so, really so, good. Yeah. So basically, I've got pulled up on my board here. Uh, I've got my song "Ain't It Good to Be in Love," and what I want to show you is how the idea started. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to play. This should be, you know, for people that are not familiar with all this stuff, but are just wondering, if yeah. I wanted to write a song, what are the steps? Exactly. So th- here's, here's, how it, here's how this came about. And now, let's keep in mind that I'm giving you a Cliff Notes version here. Right. This, this would normally take weeks or months to put all this together. It would be a course, but, right? Yeah, but, but we're going to do it super fast. Okay. But the first thing that happened, Richard, was this idea of a guitar part. So I'm going to play this guitar part for you first. So you just, we're just going to hear the guitar part for a second. Yeah. So here's, 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 here's just the, uh, is everything okay? Yeah. Okay. Here's just the guitar part. Uh, I'm going to let you hear that for a second. And this is a song you're talking about for one guitar and one singer, right? Well, this, this song, actually, you're going to hear uh, a, a, a bunch of parts 
that are going to be put on top of it. Okay, so, so the, the reason I ask that is when you say, here's the guitar part, is yes. this like a, a rhythm guitar, a lead guitar? This is a rhythm guitar part, and okay. eventually when we're done in the next 10 minutes or so, you will have heard about 20 instruments be put on top of this guitar. Okay, good. So, so the first thing I'm going to let you hear is just the inspiration of the guitar. So this is the first thing that we came up with that generated everything else. Um, we, we were, this was, this was co-written. Uh, this song was co-written by a dear friend of mine, Charlie Hoskins, uh, mm-hmm. who was in a, a band called the Popes from the UK. And he and I met in 2015 when I was on the tour in the UK and I was speaking at the university college of London and I was doing a couple gigs around town. And just to show how fate works, uh, a friend of a friend was supposed to come see me play. That friend couldn't make it. So that friend asked their cousin to come see me play. Mm -hmm. And this person, their cousin, Charlie became one of my dearest friends. And we started writing music together and I don't write music with just anybody. So uh, Mm -hmm. you have to, I have to love and respect them enough to go through the process of writing with them because it's a very personal process. Right. And so Charlie met me. We became instant friends. We started writing together. So Charlie came up with, he, he passed away, by the way, in 2017, very unexpectedly. And I am thrilled to be able to keep his music alive um, by, by working on some of the songs we did together. It, it means more to me than I can say. Um, so this so first I, part is chords and rhythm, basically. That's right. So okay. here's, here's the first idea that, we, that he came up with. And then I started building on top of it. So here's okay. just the guitar. Got it. I'm going to stop right there because you can hear that's just a little chord there. It's, it's a riff and just a little chord play. Right. Now, that's not a lot to work with. But that chord, the rhythm is bum, 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 bada, bum, 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 bum. So if you keep that in mind, watch how much much more interesting it becomes when I add a drum part that complements that chord. So here's just the drums and the guitar. So now you're seeing I'm I'm really capturing the ba 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 that the guitar had. Right. And are the so two are the two instruments playing actually playing at the same time or do you record one they, at a time are, and then yeah, re- we track it all at the same time? That's okay. a great that's a great question. So yeah, we're playing live together, but well well not all of it. 
the core guitar, bass, drums are all playing live together, but I have everybody in different rooms so I can isolate each sound. And they're wearing uh, so, headphones so they don't feel like they're isolated. That's exactly right. That's exactly okay. right. Okay. And, and that's, that is really important, you know, to, to the, the musicians have to be able to hear each other. Um, if we can work it out where we have them isolated, but they can still see each other, then we work it out that way. That becomes a little trickier. I, of course, don't need that. <laughs> it doesn't matter okay. to me. So right. when sighted people are like, oh, I need to be able to see the drummer. I'm like, ah, do you really? <laughs> do you really yeah, need right. to be able to see him? <laughs> right. But anyway, but yeah, we're all, we're all thinking about it. And I, I craft each one of these parts very specifically and say, here are the things that I want to do with the drums to make this more exciting. Here are the things I want to do with the guitar. So now that we've heard that basic idea and we see how it's grown, let me show you what happens when I bring the bass guitar in. You're going to see how now the bass guitar is filling up another place. Um, you'll be able to see how it's, it's really becoming more and more and more. So now you start to get a more full picture. What's going to really inform, we've got a rhythm track going now that makes sense, but what's really going to inform things now is when I bring the vocal in, the lead vocal. Yeah. And you'll see how the lyrics and the melody complement this groove. Once I do that, you have a basic song. So the way I write, and this is a little different, every writer is a little different, mm -hmm. but the way I write, is I imagine the guitar, the bass, the drums, and the vocals all at the same time. They all come to me as a package in my mind. Okay. And then once I have that basic idea, uh, in this case, though, the whole song started off with that little guitar line that Charlie came up with. And then from there, we, we added to that. But the, Let me um, make sure I understand what you just said, too. Did yeah. you say that the... The instrumental accompaniment and the vocal come to you at the same time? Yes. Yes, so they you all get, come. Because a lot of people ask song, singer-songwriters, do you write the words first or the music first? And they, you're, say, you're saying you they, get them both at the same time. Yep, that's exactly right. That's just that's how I'm unusual. Wired. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it is. A lot of people. Charlie, for example, um, didn't write lyrics. Um, and he didn't really write melodies. He, he wrote, like, music first. And uh, so he would, what he, how he do? He he write the, he wrote a little guitar idea that I mm -hmm. played for you, mm -hmm. and he sent it to me, and I immediately go, bam! I got the lyrics, I got the melody, I got the drum part all in my head, 
and and they they all popped into being at the same time and and that's why uh i like to i like to write when i have time to be inspired um i don't have to be in a certain mood to write because i've worked a long time to do this and i know how to be productive even when i'm not feeling particularly inspired i can still slog through it and kind of get the work done like the technical details but i like to have time like i say okay I'm going to write something today and I sit down and I know, okay, I've got 45 minutes that I can, that I can sit here and work on this. Yeah. And then, and I like to do that. Now that doesn't mean I don't have little ideas that pop up throughout the day. I do. Uh, And I'll very quickly notate them. I actually use my phone. I just record, here's an idea I had. I just sing into it, (laughs) you know, and I go, Mm -hmm. here are the chords and here are the, and you know, I just put a little fragment down. I label it with some kind of label that makes sense to me and my brain and I, I go back and visit it later. I remember that song I wrote about uh, Christmas. Let me, let me go back. It's, it's getting near Christmas time. Let me go back and think about that song. Or, so or when, you're, when you're saying that the words and the accompaniment and everything come to you all at once, mm-hmm. is it what you mean? Is it just the, the beginning of all that? Or do you see all the verses like almost right away? It, so usually I'll have a melody of the chords for that melody. So the instrumental part, and the lyric for at least a verse and a chorus. Okay, that that's a lot. And, and here's, here's how it works. I'll have something on my mind, or I'll have something on my heart, and I'll let that simmer in the back of my brain without conscious thought. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll ponder it while I'm in the shower, or when yeah. I'm, you know, I can't drive, so when I'm in the car, I'm just sitting there riding. So... The very few moments of my day when I'm not doing something, I'm almost meditating. I'm just sort of letting my, my consciousness drift, and, and I just sort of think about things and uh, think about whatever I was, whatever's on my mind or my heart. And then when I sit down, I already have a nugget of a concept there. Mm-hmm. And then it just all sort of unfolds. If I if I sit down and give myself time, it all just sort of comes. So once I get that first verse and that first chorus, those are the hardest ones, and, but they come to me, you know, pretty quickly. And then after that, everything else unfolds pretty fast. Sometimes I'll come back after a couple of days and I'll use my intellect versus my emotion or my spirit uh, to refine it and go. You know, that little part there really doesn't advance the plot we can cut that or you know what I need a little something extra in the middle of the song to make it more interesting. Let me, let me do something like that. But primarily I, I go on inspiration. Yeah. And it sounds like your inspiration is more focused in a certain way than somebody who's distracted by sight because you're, well, that's true because you know, you're totally focused on sound and, and the, what goes into it. Well, you know, the thing about me, Richard is this, most of my existence is conceptual, right? Mm-hmm. right. I, I am not nailed down to the sky is blue, the sun is yellow, the grass is green. I'm not nailed down to those concepts. They don't really mean anything to me. So my understanding of things is more conceptual in nature. Are you, visu- means, are you visualizing it internally when you conceive well, it? Well, not, not like you would. In other words, I visualize it the way that I – well, let me change that. I experience it. Is it, way, more, is it more a feeling? Yeah, it, it's, it's, more, it's more a mental construct. Okay. Um, it's more like this. It's more like I know what grass feels like under my feet. Right. 
So when I think of grass, that's what I think of. But what it means okay. is instead okay. of being nailed down to a concrete visual concept of something, mm-hmm. I am able to translate all those concepts into symbols. Uh, in other words, they, they mean they, they're just they're just assigned values. Um, so I don't think like as concrete as some people think. What kind um, of symbols are you talking about? So what I'm saying is like, for me, the gr- grass evokes a, a uh, emotional response. I think about summertime when I think about grass. I think about how okay. it feels to walk through grass barefoot. Right. I think about what being outside during the summer means. For me as a kid, outside in the summer meant that I was feeling pretty good, that I was uh, healthy, that I was enjoying my life. So, so it's more of it's more of a story and a feeling that I associate than any sort of concrete physicality. Does that make sense? Which, well, it works out perfectly because the feeling is the whole thing you're trying to put in music. Exactly. Exactly. It's not the music is not all about visual graphics. Right. It's how you're going to make somebody uh, feel, right? And, and unfortunately, in the music production business, because everything's so computer based. We have gotten to a place where people are relying on all the lights and all the graphs and all the meters. And I'm not saying those things aren't important, and I'm not saying they're not helpful because they are. Uh, and I wish I could see them. But, uh, but it does sometimes, sometimes I remind my students, stop looking at the meters, stop looking at the graphs, right. close your eyes, tell me what you hear. Well, and if you have a great musical artist performing, they don't suffer from turning the lights off. Right. Right. And, There's, you know, actually, that's in kind fact, of it, it could get better. It, 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 listen, it does, because every room in my studio has a dimmer for the lights. Uh-huh. So that the artists can get the kind of atmosphere they need to be creative. Because okay. it doesn't matter to me. I don't have to see them. <laughs> well, right. I'm just realizing that the whole pro- projection of feeling, it doesn't depend on light at all. No, actually, no. It, it's all it's all in this in this art form. It's all sonic. Yeah. You know, now, obviously, if you're a painter, that would be a, a different thing. Well, that's that's a different focus. Maybe they'd benefit if they were deaf, you know. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, anytime you can, like, go to that zone, the tennis players say they're in the zone, right, when they're really playing yeah. well. Anytime you can move to that meditative state where you're really focused and nothing else is distracting you, you're going to be more creative and you're going you're gonna to be able to get better results, I think. Yeah, yeah, the the injection of the feeling that you're focused on into yeah. the technical sound that exactly. it is a and, combination. And that's why, that's why, as an artist, you really need someone like me, like a producer, that right. can worry about all the technical stuff, yeah. so you don't have to think about it, and you can just create. Exactly. That way, exactly. I take all that off your shoulders so you can be creative. Let me worry about the microphone and where it's going to be and all that nonsense. And you can uh, give the, <laughs> the feedback that's suggesting how they need to change to make it exactly. better. Yeah, and, and so, so, so to share with you, here's, here's what happens when we bring the vocal into this mix. Um, let me just unmute that, and I'll let you hear it now. And then, then things are going to happen pretty fast, so hang on one second. All right. So once again, I'm starting from the same place so that we have a sense of how things have evolved as I add these parts. Right. So here's the beginning, and then the vocal comes in. Ready. 
we can't figure out. Well, I'm holding her, darling. There's no doubt. I can see this. I can see this. Lasting forever. Sha la la. Ain't it good to be in love? So that is the verse, the pre-chorus, and the chorus. And now all the drums and the bass and the guitar are really starting to make sense because you see how they lay with that vocal. And so in, some, we, in some cases, you'd be adding keyboard and backup singers. And, and that is what we're doing next. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You so. got it. So, so the keyboard is real subtle. Um, it's not real loud. Um, it is it is there just to add a little color. I'm going to start you a little bit into the song, and you'll hear the keyboard kind of start. We're not going to take it all the way to the top. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, hang on. If you hear voices in the background, that's my computer talking to me. Okay. It, it yeah. reads it reads what's on the screen. Okay. So here we are. Uh, and, and we're bringing the keyboard in a little bit just to add a little flavor, just a little spots. When I'm holding her, darling, there's no doubt. I can see this, I can see this, lasting forever. Sha la la, ain't it good to be in love? So I'm going to do the same passage, but this time we're just going to hear the keyboard and the vocal, just so you can really hear what that keyboard's doing. It's really just adding a little flavor. So we're going to do, do, just do the vocal and the keyboard part and let you hear that just for a second. When I'm holding her, darling, there's no doubt. I can see this, I can see this, lasting forever. Sha la la, ain't it good to be in love? Sha la la. Sha la la, ain't it good to be in love? Sha la la. So right there, the keyboard is just adding a little texture. It's not real, real important to the overall song as far as it's more something you're going to miss if it's not there. Mm -hmm. It's not something that really makes a huge difference. But listen what happens when I bring these backup vocals in now in the same spot. So now we're going to start layering the backup vocals. And, and again, we, we developed this arrangement over time. Uh, I, I would sit and think about it and go, yeah, what we need is X, Y, Z. We started off with just guitar, bass, drum, and lead vocal. And then I said, yeah, we need a little keyboard. And I said, well, we need a little backup vocal. And uh, we'll see how this progresses. So in, same in, re in real life experience, would you be bringing in studio musicians to 
fill in those well, parts? Well, my, my band, are all, we're all session players. So, so yeah. So, we, we, uh, okay. we, are, we are all the guys that played in this instance. This is my band. But okay. I make a living as a studio musician for, on guitar and bass um, and, and as an arranger. So, but, yes, we can bring it. If your band doesn't play all the requisite instruments, we can bring that in. And you're going to hear that in just a moment. i got a big surprise for you coming up in just a second. Okay. Check, check out just my – this is just me and my bass player doing the backup vocals. But in a second, it gets really cool. I'm really excited. And, and we're almost through with this stuff, with this stuff. This thing, there's there's two more elements after this one, and you'll see how different it sounds from where we started. When I'm holding her, darling, there's no doubt. I can see this, I can see this, lasting forever. Sha-la-la, ain't it good to be in love? So again, we're just adding textures here, adding a little backup vocal. Okay, I was pretty happy with the song at this point. But then we said, you know what would make this song really hit you in the heart? Is a children's choir. And my bass player was a choral director at a local middle school. So we brought in his 30-piece or 30-voice children choir, children's choir to come sing. And they were here for about two hours, and they were brilliant. They were brilliant. And I just used, uh, for those of you that are interested in the technical side, I just used two microphones, got them all up on their risers, and we had a blast. Now, it was impossible to fit all of them with headphones. So he conducted them. He had a pair of headphones, my bass player. He conducted them uh, like he would normally do it in the, in the choir room. And we also had a speaker that was positioned in a way where it wouldn't bleed into the microphones. It wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't uh, get into the microphones. And it played the lead vocal and the piano. So they had a reference. And then we blended it all in. And you're going to be amazed at these kids. I mean, just it's they were incredible. But when you hear it with these kids, it all just changes. It becomes much more than it was before. So I'm going to start roughly the same place and let you hear that. Okay. And let's just play that one more time with just the vocals so you can hear how amazing these kids are. 
a big difference right and here is i thought i thought i was done i thought i'm done this is great i'm happy but then i wanted one last thing i wanted horns and i wanted to give us a full horn section so so two two trumpets two trombones um and i wanted to do that old school memphis stacks uh, Sun Studio, you know, horn section that was on so many hits in the '60s, and uh, and I brought in a friend to do that, and uh, he he, uh, he he just did an incredible job. And so I'm just going to play for you this next little bit. Now you're hearing it with everything in. Every, so the horns are now our last element. Now, that we're how did on. one friend that you brought in do a horn section? Well, he so good. That's an excellent question. So I, I should say I brought in he brought in I, I brought in one friend he brought in a friend of his so there was a trombone player and a trumpet player. What they did was they played all the parts so it sounded like a full brass orchestra. Uh, and then and they, then stacked them back on top of each other. That's exactly play. right. Okay, yep. that's exactly so, right. So two actual people, two actual people made all these horns. Got it. Okay, and I'll let you hear those real quick. We're going to start roughly the same place, just, to, just so you can see how it changes. Yeah. 
So that is a, a rough mix. It's not not by any means the, the, the final version that went out, but that's a rough mix showing all the different elements that went into making this song. And it went over a period of, of, of you know weeks. We we recorded the first part. First, first we had to write it, then we recorded it. And the first recording was just guitar, bass, drums, and vo- lead vocal. Then we added keyboard and the backing vocal that my bass player and I did. Yeah. Then we said, oh my gosh, what if some kids were singing about love? What if what if kids were talking about you know how great it is to be in love and, and singing that how sweet they did that. And then we said, okay, now we need a little bit more, a little bit more of, the, of, of something a little bit funky, something that give you that party feeling and, and give you a, a, a lift, a joyful lift. And I thought, man, nothing better than a great horn section to make you feel like you want to dance, like you want to sing. So we brought that in and then that was the creative process. And mm-hmm. it happened over, you know, weeks and, and many, many, many hours of, of, of working with different processes, but that's kind of a sneak peek into what goes on. Your average recording artist, pick whoever you like, whether it's Snoop Dogg, Neil Diamond, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, uh, uh, Metallica, you know, these artists spend two and 300 hours in the studio for the album that you end up buying. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a lot of time and effort. And that does not include the rehearsal time. That does not include the songwriting time just the technical part of doing all these things. So when there's so much involved, it's amazing that anybody can get a good approximation of that or even better doing a live spontaneous uh, performance, right? That's true. And you know what's really interesting is I find that my live show comes up a notch once I go through the painful process of recording the song. Okay, right. Because... This way, it sets it in a concrete form that you can build on. Right. And now, I'm a little different. Uh, I play to my strengths. So I have two really good strengths. One of my strengths, I have a good memory. And the other strength is I'm really good at being creative in the moment. Mm -hmm. So I like the challenge of going out on stage night after night after night. And every night, it's a little different. So if you came to see me Friday night and you come see me Saturday night, you're going to have a different experience. There will be some things that are the same and the basic form will be the same, but I will go off on tangents and I have visual cues, which I find kind of funny that I give my band, Hey guys, I'm getting ready to go off into a new direction. Just keep doing what you're doing and pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. So I'll go up into a tangent and start playing all kinds of stuff that wasn't written. I'll start being spontaneously creative, but they know how to watch me and I give them cues with the neck of my guitar or the, my body language, or I'll use my right hand. Um, yeah. So I have a cutoff gesture, like, yeah, we're done. You know, that's okay, probably what so, I shot. But so anyway, once, you go, once you go through all those recording steps, what would happen to that song? So next we would fully, we'd finish mixing it. That, that was just a rough mix. So yeah, we'd, yeah. Fully, we'd fully mix it, balance everything out. Uh, then we'd master it. And then once that happens, the mastering is a different process that's really a lot of people don't understand very well, but um, it's more complicated than this. But essentially what you'll notice is that the lows will be a little lower. The highs will be a little crisper. um, The volume will be a little bit louder. Uh, My mix, when I send it to a mastering engineer, like our good friend Doug Diamond, uh, my mix will be usually uh, about anywhere from three to six db below zero so that he has room 
to work uh, to, to do his magic. So I don't make I don't make the music as loud as I possibly can. That's D- a, that's a rip, D- rip DB. Mistake. You're talking about volume, right? Yes, DB is decibel, and that's volume. Yeah. So I don't make okay. I don't make the music as loud as I possibly can. At this stage, I let the mastering engineer do that um, because you're getting a better tonality from not from not having the music super loud at this stage, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So we we give, and if you listen to records from the '80s, and then you listen to records from the 2000s, the records from the '80s, in some now some of them sound very dated. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of ways you'll hear that there's a lot of very rich musical things happening that that sort of got lost in the early 2000s because we had something called the loudness wars, where people just said, "Oh, we can make it super loud, so let's just do that." Right. There was no real reason to do it per se. It was just that they're like, oh, we can. And they did. And things started sounding very compressed and very uh, just sort of squished and not have a lot of dynamic, not have a lot of tone. Right. Um, we've, we've fortunately gotten away from that now. So the role of the master engineer is really more important than ever. But people finally got back to letting the studios do the mix at a reasonable volume and then let the mastering ear bring things up to industry standard level volume. Yeah. It's a much more complicated than that, but that's kind of the basic, that's a quick and dirty idea about mastering. Right. Um, but then what you would do is you would now you're ready for distribution. So how do you get the music to the fan? And that, that is the next sort of step. That's what's changed over the decades, right? Yeah, th- that that is that is the trick. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember going into the vinyl record stores a long time ago, and they had phonographs set up in the middle of the aisle, and you could take sure. a record and listen to it. Yes, with, with yes. they had headphones, and you know, well, see and, if you wanted to buy it. And I I miss I miss going to the record store because the people that work there listen to music all day long, mm-hmm. and you could go in and they and they they knew you. Right. They said, oh, hey, Joey, so and so just came in. I think you'll like this. Right. And they could recommend things that you hadn't heard of. It was it was a wonderful experience as a child. That was my favorite. One of my favorite memories was going to the record store once a week. If I was feeling good and I was was, my health would allow it, my parents would take me to the record store and I go spend, I don't know, 20 bucks or something. And that was my allowance. And I'd go in there, man. And I just I'd spend an hour and a half just listening and, and, you know, stuff like that. Right. Right. It was a lot of fun. I missed that. I missed that. You don't see that much anymore. There's still a few, like you got Newberry comics and some other, you still got some chains where you can do that, but there there's not many. Yeah. So distribution now is mostly electronic, right? Correct. Uh, and, and the physical distribution, unless you're a major label artist like Adele or somebody like that, mm. physical distribution primarily happens through live shows, which is why the live music being down right now is such a, such a sort of crippling blow to those of us that make their living, you know, selling their art. Right, right, right. Uh, before I forget too, um, I, I assume, what would you call the room that you're in right now in the studio? Yeah. So, and, and, and this room is the control room. So okay. this is the heart of the studio. Everything comes into this point from all the other rooms. And, and this and is this, where we, huh? This piece of equipment that you're sitting in front yeah, of. This is my, some people call it a desk. Some people call it a mixing board. I call it a console. Um, okay. Yeah, so this is, my, this is my mixing console. And I don't know if you can see, but all these channels over here, each one of these is a different instrument. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the obvious question is, why does it have to be eight feet long or whatever? <laughs> I mean, what, what, those kidding. buttons are not just painted on. I mean, you, they actually no, do no. things. 
So. But well, so basically, each one of these channels has a set of controls on it, and they're replicated all the way down the board. There's 48 of them on the bottom, and then there's a second row up here on the top, and there's mm -hmm. 48 on the top. And so they have a set of controls. So each one of these would control a microphone, and uh, that microphone might be sometimes like on the drum set, for example, I'll have anywhere from four to 12 microphones on just the drums. Wow. So that's okay. why you have to have so many channels. So you're making um, really fine adjustments on how you want the sound to come out. Oh, yeah, yeah, my, okay. my new adjustments. And, and like I said, right now, the, what, what I just played you, normally I, I kind of I cheated and kind of uh, blended a bunch of stuff together. But normally I would have, you know, from, from this side of my, from the far left to about mm -hmm. midline would just be drums, just, just tweaking drums. What, I, what oh. I played right now is something called a stem, which is all the drum parts kind of summed together. But okay. normally I have control. Of, so right now I can just raise and lower the volume. And so normally I would have every instrument would have its own channel. It would be from the left of the console all the way to the right. And we would have that in the recording process so that we capture the live performance, right? Each one of these microphones, each one of these channels, we capture the live performance. But then I'd also have that same control in the mixing process where I actually blend everything together. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's super technical to go into. But you can you can take out low frequencies. You can add high frequencies. Mm -hmm. And I have gear that surrounds me all over here that does all kinds of different things. It changes tone, that uh, changes dynamics. So it makes something louder, a little softer, makes something softer, a little louder. All kinds of equipment. That it, it, you know, most guys will mix on a song for 10 to 12 hours. Uh, you know, the big boys. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right. Sometimes the small guys don't have that kind of time. But uh, if you'd like, I can show you around this space a little bit more. Yeah, that'd be good. And and then and then uh, show you the other rooms so you can get a feel for for the creative spaces we have. Yeah, yeah. Because all we know right now is the space you're in. Yeah, absolutely. So this device right here. Let's turn it on. Uh, this is a version of something called an LA two way. And it controls dynamics. So basically, if you've got a sound that goes from loud to soft, sometimes that can be problematic. You want the sound to be more even throughout the recording. Mm -hmm. And so this device helps control those dynamics. Now, I've got several devices that do kind of the same thing. They control dynamics. But because they're different makes of that device... And they have different components. They have different tubes, different types of wiring, copper versus silver, different kind of capacitors. The tone they create is different. So for a more mellow tone, I might use this version of my LA-2A. If we drop down here, here's another. Let me see if I can find the switch to turn the thing on. I think it's way over here. I was going to make the pretty lights come on, but I can't find it's it. It's in the middle on the bottom. Oh, there we go. Did that, did that turn on? Mm -hmm. Okay. So... This is a different, this is a little bit more bright. This is a little bit more uh, aggressive. So it, it's not quite as smooth to me. It's a little bit more aggressive. And it depends on what we're doing as to which one I want. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's another, down here at the bottom, there's another one uh, that, that does much the same thing, but has a different kind of vibe. So I work to get different kinds of, 
vibe. We talk about adding, you know, in your car stereo, you can add more bass or more treble. Well, we can do that for every single instrument at a very high level. So here's two processors right here that do that. These are my SSL alpha strips, and they do that. They, they add all the bass and the treble and the mids, and I can assign those to whatever instrument I want. So as you take a look, here's this whole, let's back up and show the whole rack. There's a whole bunch of those dynamics controls, EQ, all in this rack. Now we'll this, go to the middle this rack. This is got, like for processing the recording after it's finished from that first version, right? That's exactly right. Okay. Every once in a while, Richard, I will process as we're recording, but I don't do it very often because I like to give myself more flexibility later on. Okay. I don't want I don't want to get stuck with something and not like it later. Right. And right. How it works is if you if you record guitar based drums and then somebody in the band said, hey, you know, it'd be great is if we had an accordion on this song. Uh-huh, well, uh-huh. now all the choices I made before when I thought it was going to be just guitar-based drums, I'm stuck with those choices, and we've added a new element that may not work exactly as I had intended to begin with, so I have to make a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. So I like to give myself room to, make, to, make my, to, to change my mind later on. So, that's, so if we finish, also let me just show you one more rack. Here's this final rack. Again, this is all processing equipment for after the mix. You can see a whole bunch of it over there. Okay. And that's just one side. Let me show you over here where uh-huh. the keyboards are. We'll just spin around. Yeah. Looks like if you wanted to change to a simpler career, you'd go into flying a 747 or something. This <laughs> well, really you know, they pilot. say the autopilot does a lot of the work these days. <laughs> yeah, you don't get those for sound processing, I guess. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> so right here, I have all my keyboards, and they all have different attributes. For example, this one right here at the bottom, the keys are weighted so they feel more like a grand piano, like a real piano. Uh-huh. And, and that's kind of important if you're, if you're a real piano player. This next one up the next level, the keys are real mushy, and, and they're not as weighted. So that's kind of important. They also sound very differently. And then up here at the top, we have two smaller ones that also have a lot of different sounds. So I combine them to get all kinds of different sounds, from organs to horn samples to synthesizers. They're all on these keyboards over here. Okay. And then let me take you to the tracking room. So we're going to take a quick walk down the hall. Now, over here, this room is my main tracking room. And this is where I'll have a lot of the musicians stand to be recording. I try not to have the drums and the rest of the band in the same room, but sometimes the artists really want that. They want to be able to be in the same space. Mm-hmm. So if we have to, we can. But again, I try to give each instrument its own room. You can see this room's you know fairly good size, about the size of a sort of average living room, I'd say. And on the wall are these foam baffles that we created, and they help keep the sound from bouncing around too much. Now, you can look at them if you want. You can look at the floor and see that I have hardwood floors in here because I like the way the sound bounces on the floor. But I don't like the way the sound bounces on the wall. So I've taken steps to minimize that. Okay, okay. So this is where a lot of people will be. Right now, there's really not much in here. There's an amp sitting around and some other stuff. 
So this is where we'd stick the horn section, for example, would be in this room. And the window to the control room. And here's the, yeah, here's the window. You can see another view of the control room. Here you can see this is where I would be mm. sitting. I'd be people would be able to see me. Of course, I wouldn't be able to see them, but you know, that's okay. their loss. <laughs> okay. Right. And then back here, let me show you my favorite space. So now you see my drum set. This is my drum room. And as you can see, every drum has a microphone. Right here over the hi-hat, these two cymbals that come together with a pedal. There's a microphone here. There's a microphone on this snare drum here. I've got a mic on it. Each one of these drums at the top, these are called toms. Each one of them has a drum a mic. I've got five of those. And then up here near the ceiling, I capture the whole drum kit with two mics left and right. And, of course, you can see they'll also capture not only the whole drum kit, but all these cymbals. And then here in the front, we have mics on this big drum here, the kick drum. So I've got two mics, one on the outside that picks up sub-frequencies, the really low stuff, and then one on the inside that picks up more of the attack. And then sometimes I'll put a mic. Is there one over here? Mm -hmm. Okay. Sometimes I'll put a mic in the corner of the room. So I'm just picking up really the, 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 the boominess, the echo of the room. So I'm kind of creating natural reverb like you have in your shower when you sing at home. Yeah. When they sing in the shower. So the reason is you've got reverb. So I'm picking up that natural sound of the room and not so much the sound of the drums. I've already got all these close mics for that. Then I've got this one mic here in the corner that kind of takes care of let me hear the whole room. Got it. And we got two last stops. This is my vocal booth, and I've got my classic Neumann U87 here, one of the greatest vocal mics in the world. It can also be used on horns and stuff like that, but it is a really wonderful vocal mic. It's sort of the, the quintessential great studio mic. And this small space, as you can see, all the walls are covered with that sound insulation foam. So it's really very quiet in here. There's not much room tone. There's no reflection. It's a very quiet space. So it works really great for vocals. It works really great for narration if you're doing an audiobook or a voiceover. Mm -hmm. I've got acoustic guitars in here too. But normally with my instruments, I like to have a little bit more of the room uh, sound as part of the recording. But with vocals, I tend to... I tend to like to have a little bit more quiet because then I can really fool with the vocals and affect them in all kinds of different ways. And it doesn't affect uh, anything else. So I, this is my sort of my quiet room. Nice. And then headphones. Yep. Oh yeah. Oh, here's, you were talking earlier. Uh, yep. Yeah. Earlier, here's the headphone box so that all the musicians can hear each other. And each one of these knobs can be assigned a different instrument. So this knob could be drum volume it wouldn't be all the drums separately. It'd be them as a group. This might be the bass. This might be a guitar. That might be the vocal. That might be a piano. So you can, the, 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 each, each person can really sort of set their headphones the way they like it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In theory, it's supposed to make my job easier, but oftentimes it doesn't. <laughs> it's supposed to. <laughs> Is that because it's adding so many more variables? Well, 
the the reason is because it is um, people are used to saying, "Oh, I can't hear the drums. Let's turn the drums up." Yeah. Then they say, "Hear the bass. Let's turn the bass up." Then they say, "Oh, I can hear the guitar. Let's turn the guitar up." And then they get back to, "Oh, I can't hear the drums. Let's turn the drums up." So, so they all get too loud, is what you're saying? Yes. Okay. So what really needs to happen is the first thing you should do is turn something down before you turn something else up. Uh, That's yeah, vulnerable. yeah, yeah. Okay. But but people have a hard time, you know, remembering that. Let me show you my one of my favorite features. This is my grand piano room. And I'm going to show you the ceiling here. I have these little sound clouds. Can you show those? Mm -hmm. And those are just sort of minimizing some of the bounce of the ceiling. Mm -hmm. uh, I chose the shape just because I like octagons. There's no really acoustical reason for that. Uh, but that's the treatment there. Over in the corner, we have some bass traps. Kind of looks like a foam column. And that's to absorb the sound of the corners of rooms. Bass frequencies love to hang out in corners of rooms. So to minimize that boominess, we put some up. And let me show you my favorite thing. We built this. I say we, I didn't. But uh, people that work here do. Uh, this, it looks like a piece of art to me. Um, this is a reflector. It's a diffuser. So um, let me start that again. This is a diffuser. So... If you have a totally flat surface, let me get over here. Yeah. If you have a totally flat surface like this wall, the sound will bounce back. So it hits it, it's flat, it bounces back. If we were to put foam on the wall, it would deaden it mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and mute the sound. But with this diffuser, because of the different depths and heights and arrangements of these blocks, they were as random as we could make them. The sound hits it, and instead of being muted or bouncing back, it sort of spreads out and fades away. That's oversimplified, but that's kind of the idea. The okay. reason I built this on this wall is because if you look here, I've got a grand piano, and the way this room is shaped, the grand piano is a little closer to this wall than I would like, but I didn't really have a choice in the way the room was set up. So instead, I just built this on the wall, and it sounds gorgeous. Wow. I'm going to come around to the other side so you can see the great piano. Lids up. And you can actually see inside the lid here all the strings and where the microphones are. And so this is a, this is a great piano. I'm not, I'm not going to play, but, you know, it's, it's a really bright very, very great uh, piano. It has sounds really good for jazz. It's really, it's a really great sounding piano. Uh, it sounds real good for classical. And then I have a smaller little grand over here. Let me just walk this way. This sounds a little bit more. Uh, sounds a little bit better for country and rock. It's a little bit, a little bit warmer sounding. Uh huh. A little bit different flavor. About a hundred years old. <laughs> yeah, right. and then over here against the wall, you'll see some old electric pianos from Wurlitzer. Uh, one, the the tan one is from uh, circa nineteen sixty eight, and it's the sound that you heard Ray Charles use on "What I Say." Uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. That kind of piano. The black one is from roughly nineteen seventy three, and was used. Uh, on Riders of the Storm by the Doors, that that kind of, not this specific piano, but this type of piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, 
If you're a Steve Miller Band fan, you'll recognize some sounds off this little old Korg synthesizer here in the middle. Finally in this room, as we come all the way to the corner, I've got a Lowry organ. Uh, it's been used by Bob Dylan and some of his songs, also used on the Beatles song, Strawberry Fields Forever. So that's that organ sound on Strawberry Fields. Yeah. Uh, comes from this Lowry organ. And then lastly in the corner here, I've got some old analog equipment from the 70s that was given to me by the Georgia Music Hall of Fame when it closed. The people that donated this stuff to the Hall of Fame for an exhibit didn't want it back, but we hated to throw it away. So I show this what I show my students so they can see how people used to record on tape. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then you have to explain tape. Yeah, then I have to explain what tape is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but these are the different creative spaces that I use to record all the music we've been talking about and listening to today. Yeah, beautiful. And here's where we put our keys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. We just think this is cool. That's, yeah. That's so it's, it's, it's the plug that you put on a cord for like a guitar cord for a guitar right, band. Right, right, right. And you have just these little, they're just jacks. Oh, I see. <laughs> that's great. That's, a, that's a, a genuine Fender key hanger, I guess. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That is my favorite $30 thing in the studio. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's about the only $30 thing in the studio. So over to the left, I have my computer. That's where everything's recorded to the computer these days. Instead of recording to disc or uh, it's like the CD or the mini disc, or the tape, or vinyl, or wax, or whatever. Everything's recorded to the computer nowadays. So this is where I have my computer set up, all the converters that that take the sound from analog, meaning, meaning well, in this instance, from acoustic, meaning something you hear, and turn it into digital signals that we can process digitally. Those converters are on this side. I have a control surface, so over here on the left, that has my play and record buttons, it also has some faders there that are motorized that I automate things with. So if I've got a volume, if I have something on the, if I have a something I want to change the volume of, and I want it to do it every single time I play back, I can literally control this as I'm listening. So let's say a singer's singing kind of loud. They sound pretty good, but one spot's just super loud, and I don't want to compress it. I don't want to use any of my other tools to change that. I can just sit here, and as I'm listening, I go, okay, this next line is going to be loud. Pull it back. The computer records that movement, and then when I'm done with that low part, I bring it back up. The computer will remember that and automate that every time so it happens every time as I'm playing back. So that's what these are for. They are, they are, they are writable automation. So everything that I do on this control surface, the computer records that information and, and repeats that motion every time. In the old days, you get everybody in the studio together, and everybody would sit down with different controls. You say, okay, at measure 37, you bring these two faders up, and at measure 45, you bring them back down. And you'd actually have to rehearse the mix, uh, especially with a board that's real big like this. And then as we go down on this far left-hand side, there's some more uh, processors like we saw earlier. And then on the far right-hand side, there are some more keyboard modules. So there's some more, there's some more sounds there, like for pianos and strings and all kind of different processors over there. So there's, there's more, even more processors than we saw earlier. 
Wow. So, Joey, what we ought to, I think, finish up with is basically what you're doing now and what things people can participate in or follow or anything like that that you want to share. Right now, I'm focused on my story, sharing that like I always do through my music. I'm focused on people who can come and record their music that they've been creating during this difficult time, having them come record and let me help them on their journey. I really take a lot of honor and privilege and pride in being able to help people at the beginning of their journey so they have a wonderful experience and they and people and they feel inspired to keep going. So I, I do. I also do a lot of podcasts, a lot of magazine interviews, um, talking about my story. And uh, really, uh, one of the big things I've been working on, and this is kind of off topic a little bit, but I've lost 72 pounds. Wow. And working on eating healthier and using this time where I have a little more free times than I would, a little more free time than I'd want. Yeah. Uh, but using it for something positive, I needed to lose weight. I needed to get myself in shape. And I've been doing that. It's a process. <laughs> it's, it's not easy, but I'm real happy about it. And I lost so much weight that I was able to come off my blood pressure medication. So I'm really doing well with that. Uh, as far as how they can participate, if you're interested in my music, I would love for you to check that out. JoeyStuckey.com, J-O-E-Y-S-T-U-C-K-E-Y.com. Uh, my studio website is called Shadow Sound Studio, all one word.com. And you can visit me there. And if you're a musician, you're looking for someone to help guide you through the music business. You're looking for someone to help you, you know, write your song. You're looking for someone to help produce your song. I'm glad to be part of that. Uh, if you're looking for guitar lessons or anything like that, you know, I can teach all that stuff virtually, and I do. I have several students that are virtual. I have several students that still come to the studio here. Um, I teach music technology, so I, there are people that send me their mixes. And I critique those and tell them, you know, here's here's maybe some places you can improve. Here are the things that you've done really well. Here are the places maybe we could we could we could study a little bit and, and try to figure out if we can make that any better. And uh, yes, I mean, and, and I'm all over social media. My uh, Twitter and Instagram handle is at J Stuckey Music. That's the letter J. And then Facebook.com slash Joey Stuckey and Facebook.com slash Joey Stuckey Music. And then I also must say I have a YouTube channel. And I really invite you to check that out. I've got a video right now that's got a, what is it, 150,000? Yeah. 150,000 views over the last uh, two months. And it's it's just me playing a guitar with a dollar bill taped around the strings, <laughs> showing off an old uh, Johnny Cash guitar dollar bill trick. It's a 24 seconds of your time. So if you get a chance, check that out. And, and, and I'd love to I'd love to talk to anybody that wants to talk about music, man. I'm always available. What, and what's the best way to contact you for that? The best way is email, because uh, typically if I'm recording, my phone's turned off. Mm-hmm. And then if I'm working, sometimes it's like, oh, it's 2 in the morning. It's too late to call somebody back. So email's really good. And that's simply joey at joeystuckey.com, J-O-E-Y at joeystuckey.com. Great. And what was the second website? You had joeystuckey.com, and there's a website oh, for your studio, right? You know, website. And it's shadow sound studio all one word and then dot com yeah i can imagine if somebody is at the point of they've got an instrument maybe a guitar or a piano or something like that and they're singing with it and they're writing songs and they want to go from that stage into a professional recording level 
that would be a good time to talk to you, I would imagine. Or yeah, you, I, you said you would talk to songwriters in process too, right? Yeah, I do that too. And you know, look, a lot of a lot of people that come to me um, are just singers. They don't even play an instrument, mm-hmm. and they have an idea for lyrics and melody. And they, I have people that send me recordings of themselves on their iPhone, just singing the song as they hear it. Okay. And I extrapolate from that what the chords should be, and I create the whole song around that. So you can you can do that even if they can't come in in person, right? Yeah. So so how I would basically do it is the iPhone recording is sufficient for me to build the song around it. In other words, it's sufficient to send me you singing on the phone, uh-huh. and then I can make all the music for you based on what you sang. The iPhone recording is not good enough um, for me to take that and use that as your lead vocal track. I mean, it wouldn't it just wouldn't be good enough. Right. But you can record your vocals at home and send those to me and I can mix them in with very little equipment. Or you could go to a studio in your area, record mm-hmm. for, for a simple, like an hour, get your vocal down, send me that file. Or I can send you all my tracks. You can take it to a studio in your area and cut your vocals to it and mix it there. I work uh-huh. with people all over the world from, from Japan to the UK, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, Florida, Detroit. Um, just you know, Georgia, all over the world, New York. I just did a project for a friend of mine in New York. So, yeah, I work with people all over the world, and we just trade files on the Internet. And how are you going to help people who are trying to write a song? And maybe well, they're partway into it or something. Yeah, so basically, in that way, I would come in and say, um, I'd talk to them about language. And I'd say, okay, this lyric, I, I think I understand what you're trying to say, but I'm not, I'm, I'm having to figure that out based on what I think you're trying to say, these mm. lyrics are not real clear. Um, how about changing this word to that word that's a little bit more, gives me a little bit more of a mental picture of what you're trying to say. Right, right. I may, they say, hey, I love, I love this song, but you know, the last line of the chorus is distracting to me and takes me out of the moment. Okay. Maybe you should consider dropping that line or maybe changing the melody. Or I might say, hey, your melody is very repetitive all the way through. There's not much change from the verse to the chorus. We mm-hmm. need to change that melody in the chorus so that typically what you want is the chorus to be the biggest part of the song. So if it's not the biggest part of the song, and now that's not to say there aren't songs where the chorus is not the biggest part. There are, there are songs that have been hits where the chorus is not the biggest part of the song. But generally speaking, I think of the chorus as the newspaper headline uh-huh. and verses are the detail of that story. So that's kind of how I think about it for the writing process. So the name and the chorus are going to be what's most easily remembered, I would imagine. Uh, typically, that is the case. I mean, you know, there's always an exception to the rule. But yeah. by you study, like, one of the things I do, I've done in my time when I was in school, and I still do it now, I try to study what makes a hit song? What are the elements to this song being a hit? Why is it resonating with people? Right. And things that we can see just scientifically is Typically, the chorus, if it's a really good chorus, the rest of the song's not as important because that chorus will stick in your head. We call it a hook. And so that, yeah, that hook yeah. sticks with you. And, and, and people love the song for the chorus. And then eventually they learn the verses, too. But it's that chorus that grabs people, typically. And what about if somebody is at some stage with guitar and wants to learn more? What can you do for them? So with that, we can talk about music theory. I can talk about how notes work together so that you're not having to guess or fumble your way through the process. So mm-hmm. you have 
intellectual understanding of what you're doing with your instrument. I can show you finger positions, ways to play the chords easier, um, ways to approach the instruments, good practice technique, um, good good mental discipline. So it, it all gets back to just learning your craft. So right. I, I can take you into the craft to to the minutia, or I can give you the broad strokes. Whatever whatever you need to whatever you need to further your career or further your exploration of music. And tell them what what to spend all the practice time on. I guess absolutely. I, I have a whole. I'm all into muscle memory. I'm re- I'm really into kinesthetics. I have a whole regimen of how I think you should spend your practice time, which is <laughs> a whole other long story. But yeah, all that stuff is is things we talk about. Okay, okay, that sounds great. So, um, lots of reasons for people to get in touch with you and hopefully become part of one or more of your projects in some way or other. I'm always excited to talk to anyone, and I'm always glad to lend the ear and support if I can. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, well, hopefully everybody involved in music is going to start following all all that you do. And how much of your music is accessible from joeystuckey.com? Uh, actually, I'd say probably 85%. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, neat. Um, back when you did, um, when things were still operating and you did concerts out in the open with, you know, like they did in the old days when people would go and listen to someone playing music live, is any of that recorded on YouTube or anywhere else that people can see? Mm-hmm. There is, yeah. There's, there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of live video on YouTube. I've got I don't, how many videos do I have? A thousand, something like that. It's crazy. It's not all live. It's not all live video, but there's a. I mean, some of it's shot from somebody's cell phone. Some of it's professionally done. Okay. Uh, like, the show at the Whiskey a Go Go, and that's professionally shot on on you know, HD cameras. Um, right. But then we did a shot at. Um, at Coney Island baby where somebody brought a nice camera and just handheld it for the show and videotaped it. And then we've got me playing at a bar in New York called bar nine, where my wife was just shooting me on her cell phone. Okay. But there's live video out there and it's everything from covers to originals. I, I try to put mostly original stuff up, but there's some covers up there. All right. Yeah. I, I, it seems to me the main difference in quality of recordings of live concert type footage is the audio. You know, some of it sounds really far away, and yeah. others is almost like like it was a real recording. Well, it depends on where you're sitting in the room, too. Yeah. So, if, where the sound man's sitting, it probably sounds pretty good. But if you're but if you're further away or closer than that, you know, it it can sound a lot different. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that's on YouTube of people recording concerts is just from the audience in a different position. You know. Yeah, so. it's mostly not good. And we have a few of those, too. <laughs> uh, right. Okay, well, super exciting, and there's all kinds of directions it can go in, so hopefully we'll start some interaction and see what develops. But thank you, Joey. It was really an honor to see your studio and to get to meet you guys and walk around and feel like we should um, keep it going and see what, see what happens next. Well, listen, my friend, thank you for what you do, and thank you for letting me be part of it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, really exciting. You're now a permanent part, so... I love it. You guys have a good rest of the day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, buddy. All right. See ya. Thank you. Okay, you guys, there goes Joey Stuckey, and I hope that you uh, got something good out of that. Thanks very much to Jennifer for helping us out so much, Joey's wife. And I just wanted to bring him in, and I thought uh, the connection through Doug would make it possible, which it did. Um, 
just to give you one small example of somebody who is taking challenges and instead of seeing them as discouraging adversity or anything, which you can easily do, we've all done that a lot, seeing it as an opportunity to do something really positive. And in whatever style that applies to each one of our lives, I think we can benefit from it. So it's just meant for some inspiration and also some uh, bonus insight to the inside of a recording music studio business. Uh, and Joey's invitation to everybody to be in touch with him if you want to talk about anything related to music at all, Joey at jstucky.com um, is really a good invitation to take advantage of. Find out more about what he does. Go to joeystucky.com and hear his music. And um, remember, he answered that question about YouTube, that his concert footage is there too. He said a thousand videos, and that would be fun to take a look at when you get a chance um, joeystucky.com for that and uh, com to see what his studio is up to stay in contact with that and the, the different kinds of recording work that he's doing and the lessons that he's offering a uh, whole range of services that's good to be aware of and I think that's a pretty good uh, wrap up to the whole thing a project that actually worked out I'm, I'm glad for that and uh, remember that we have these Sunday shows every week supposed to be inspiring and educational people or projects that that we want to share with you. And then we've got the Saturday shows, Lost Arts Radio Live at 4.30 Pacific, 7.30 Eastern uh, on every Saturday. And that's usually related to current events. Uh, Planetary Healing Club for people that want to go deeper into the work on themselves and their own life with respect to uh, health and consciousness tools that make it easier to upgrade everything that you're doing. That's at planetaryhealingclub.com or if there's any questions about that or anything else or show suggestions or anything, feedback that you want to give us, you can always email it in, uh, contact forms or richard at lostartsradio.com. And if you want to help us stay on the air and support what we're doing and you've got the means to do that, there are donate buttons to th- that go to our nonprofit at lostartsradio.com or lostartsresearchinstitute.org or subscribestar.com slash lostartsradio. And uh, stay subscribed to our non-censoring platforms, which are in- increasing now, subscribestar.com slash channel slash lostartsradio. And also, oh no, subscribestar.com slash lostartsradio. Um, Brideon.com is, is a channel that doesn't censor. And Brideon.com slash uh, channel slash Lost Arts Radio. And, and we're just getting on uh, BitChute as well. And there's others that may come up in the near future. So stay in touch at LostArtsRadio.com. Any suggestions, feedback, anything, feel free to send it. And um, have a great week, and we'll see you here next time. Talk to you soon. Introducing Lost Arts Radio on Subscribestar.com. Just go to Subscribestar.com slash Lost Arts Radio to find our rewards program offering 10 different giving levels starting at just 5 bucks a month. We offer incredible value for any rewards level, from extra monthly interview videos not available publicly to subscription-based Planetary Healing Club videos once, twice, or three times a month to private counseling sessions with Lost Arts Radio host Richard Sachs, to tech help with me, Doug Diamond. We even have one option where you 
can be the star on Lost Arts Radio as our guest on a specially produced show just for you. We conduct an interview with you and broadcast it to our growing network and listenership. Our subscribe star levels are one of a kind and offer great rewards for any budget. Please help support Lost Arts Radio. We can't do it without you. With increasing censorship on many of our channels, we really need your support today to keep doing what we're doing. As Richard says, we're not even at survival level yet. Lost Arts Radio has three weekly shows. Lost Arts Radio Live each Saturday night at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific, which is a live stream currently on multiple platforms in case we get banned from some of the larger ones. Right now, we're on two YouTube channels, Facebook Live, Periscope, which is Twitter, Twitch, and DLive. You can access these broadcasts by going to www.lostartsradio.com live for all the links to those channels. The Planetary Healing Club meets right after Lost Arts Radio Live at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on Saturday nights. And our Sunday show with guests airs at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on Sunday nights on our Blog Talk Radio channel, our YouTube channels, Facebook pages, and on Brideon. Be sure to sign up for our free email list just in case we do get banned on big text platforms. It's just a matter of time, really. They don't like the stuff we talk about, and they do not want the truth out there. In fact, they have already attacked us numerous times. Join our free email list so we can let you know where we are and how to access our shows. The sign-up button is right on the top right on most pages of our website. The best starting point for all things Lost Arts Radio is our main site, lostartsradio.com, where you can find the hottest news selection videos that we curate just for you. Those are on the homepage and added to daily, as well as articles and breaking news about information you really need to know. Our show archives, the 10 most recent shows, are right on our homepage, as well as our Blog Talk Radio page at blogtalkradio.com slash lostartsradio, or just click the All Things Radio Show tab right on our website. We're in the podcast directory on iTunes, and all of our shows except the banned ones are on our YouTube channels at Lost Arts Radio and at Diamond Disc. Our Brideon page is really taking off, and we often have editors' picks videos right on their homepage. Visit Brideon.com slash channel slash Lost Arts Radio. On our site, you can also access our free listener forum as well as sign up for the Planetary Healing Club, which is just $25 a month, where you get private access to a one-on-one interaction with hosts Richard Sachs and myself and the other club members who participate live. More info can be found at planetaryhealingclub.com. We're providing solutions in there to make the world a better place. Come join us. Stay tuned because up next, you'll get to hear a really great song by an independent artist that we're doing our best to support. Go to lostartsradio.com slash music for the full list of all the great songs and bands that we spin on our audio-only podcast shows. If you're in a band and want to submit a song for consideration for airplay on Lost Arts Radio, visit my website at diamonddiscaudio.com for more information about the music placement, mastering, and mixing work that I do. Thanks again for listening to and supporting Lost Arts Radio. We love having you as part of our family to learn, experience, and grow with.
to be 